Well, good morning. If you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, as we continue our series in the book of Genesis, and we have been in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is one unit, and really, it's, uh, you should really kind of try to preach it in one, one sermon, but it's really hard to do that because there's so many things going on, so I've had to break it up over a couple of different sermons here. So I'm going to, last time we dealt with man's fall into sin, and this week we're going to focus especially on God's confronting of sinful man, look a little bit at the judgment that God issues, but then also how he uh, gives this provision of salvation. And we're going to look more in more depth at that uh, in the following weeks as well. But today we're going to deal specifically and focus primarily on Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. But I want to go back before we go there, and we're going to start in verse 7 and read down the verse 15, but focusing on verses 8 through 13. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. Genesis chapter 3, beginning of verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, that is of Adam and Eve, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And the Lord said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy, infallible word that you have given to us. And, O Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand your word and to apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tragedy. Tragedy. That's what we're looking at in Genesis chapter 3, in case you didn't know. Tragedy. God created this universe. He declared that it was all good. He created man in his image to be his royal prophets, priests, and kings, to walk with him in intimate fellowship as they dwelled in the temple garden of Eden and to spread his kingdom over the face of the earth. But as we have seen in Genesis chapter 3, it all went wrong very quickly. How quickly, you ask? Well, day six, he creates Adam and Eve. Day seven, the day of rest. And it seems as though the very next day, because we see Adam hasn't even named Eve yet, that comes later. Very soon, our first parents yielded to the temptation of Satan, and as a result, they plunged themselves 
and the entire creation into a state of sin, death, and misery. And so all that we see that is wrong with the world, all the dysfunction, all the disease, all the death, all that is wrong with me and all that is wrong with you is all traced back to that tragic day. And today, we pick up the narrative after Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden tree, and we find them hiding from the Lord as the Lord approaches them to confront them. And God calls them, and he calls them to confess. Confess your sin. And of course, he'll pronounce judgment. But in the midst of all this, and let's be honest here, the story could have ended right then and there. Man could have been sentenced to, to be cursed forever. But God, in his amazing grace, decides to give this promise to send a Savior to conquer Satan and to bring salvation to all who believe. Pure, amazing grace. So the main idea of our passage this morning is this, is that God calls sinners to confess their sin and judge sin and provide salvation from sin to all who believe. And we're going to look at three points this morning. First of all, God's call to sinners to confess their sin. Now, after Adam and Eve sin, in verse 7, we read that their eyes are open and they realize that they're naked and they sewed together fig leaves to cover their nakedness. Now, if you're trying to figure out, well, how big are these fig leaves? What are fig leaves? What do fig leaves look like? That's, that's what I was doing. I was like, I wonder, what, I wonder about this. Inquiring minds want to know. So I thought maybe you'd like, like to know. So I found the picture here. And here's a picture. I think it's the scale. And you can see the fig leaf. It's pretty big. Not very big. You can imagine how difficult it would be to sew together or mat together these fig leaves. They probably take the, the stems of the branches and try to you can imagine how difficult that would be. Try doing that, right? Well, in a second, don't, don't try doing that. I don't want people going away from here saying, Pastor John said to go and get fig leaves and tie them together, and, and then you have the fig leaf fashion show, and you say, and, and it's in the Bible too. You know? <laughs> so no, don't, don't, do, don't do that. But you can imagine how difficult that would be. You can imagine how flimsy and insufficient that was. And, and let's be honest, how absolutely ridiculous it was. Now we're going to deal more with the fig leaves a little bit later, but for now, and how the insufficiency of those and, and different applications of that, but for now, we notice something very important. We notice that Adam and Eve were not stricken dead by God the moment that they ate of the forbidden tree. Because we recall, and this was the the, the objection of, of Satan, God said that in the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And yet here, Adam and Eve are breathing in God's air. Breathing in and out. They haven't been stricken dead. But they know they're naked. And instead of being gods, their eyes are open to the fact that they are finite creatures who must now stand before the one true and living God. And they're overcome with guilt 
and shame and fear. And why are they alive? Why are they still breathing? Well, they're breathing, but the very moment that they ate, death invaded their entire existence. Physically now, all they and all of humanity now are subject to disease and suffering, and one day we're all going to stop breathing. We'll breathe our last, and we'll, from dust we came, and from dust we're going to return. And spiritually, we all died. Death came into the world. Spiritually now, the Scriptures teach that we are corrupt to the very core of our being, our mind, our emotions, our will, totally corrupt to the core. We are alienated from God. We are cut off from the life of God that is found in him, spiritually dead. And then in verse 8, God comes to confront them, and we see the text says that they, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Walking in the cool of the day. Now, you need to understand that the garden wasn't just home to Adam and Eve. But as we've discussed already, the garden was the earthly dwelling place of the Lord God, his throne room, his earthly temple on earth, the place where God, the text says, walked with his people. So this walking with his people is a metaphor for being in fellowship and communion with God. We quoted it in our call to worship here, where in Leviticus it says, he says, I will make my dwelling among you, my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. He's saying this to the people of Israel. He's saying what was lost in the fall is going to be restored to you now. But here we are in the, with Adam and Eve. We see God walking, this idea of walking, being in fellowship here. They hear the sound of God walking in the garden. And the sound is not unusual. However, what do we make of this approach of the Lord? What do we make of this approach where it says that they heard the sound of him walking and in the cool of the day? And here, we have to confess there's some ambiguity, some uncertainty in the Hebrew text. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, <laughs> just so you know. I had to take it in seminary, as Brother Timothy could attest. But still, you have to do your exegesis. You have to go on. You have to deal with this. And you read the scholars. And there's uncertainty here about what exactly is going on. So for example, the word sound can mean thundered. And cool of the day literally means wind of the day. Or as some scholars say now, wind of the storm. And so. Some scholars are saying, when you put this all together, instead of God walking in peaceful breeze of the late afternoon, some scholars argue that Adam and Eve hear the Lord approaching in the thunderstorm wind of judgment. And based on the context of the passage, I think that has a lot of credence. And part of the context that we see here is the use of the divine covenant personal name of God. They heard the sound of, notice in the text, Lord is all, capital, all capitalized, the Lord Yahweh God. Now we recall all through chapter 2, the personal name of God was used. However, in chapter 3, the personal name 
was not used when Satan began his temptation. It was the impersonal word God, Elohim. And in Eve's response, it's the impersonal word Elohim. It's not Yahweh. It's not the personal covenant name of God. But now, all of a sudden, in the narrative, there's a shift back to using the personal covenant name of God. The narrative is reinforcing the deeply personal covenantal nature of what is happening. Adam and Eve have broken the covenant of works with God. Blessings if you obey, curse if you disobey, and what we have going on here, it seems, is a covenant lawsuit. God now, the holy God, is coming now to bring the covenant lawsuit against his royal prophets, priests, and kings. And so we can put these ideas together, I think. Walking in the cool of the day and in this idea of, of the wind of judgment. Because I think we can put these together. And here's how I think we can put it together. Adam and Eve broke covenant with the Lord, hence the sweet communion where they walk with God in the cool of the day is shattered. Shattered. Now Yahweh, the holy God of heaven and earth, comes in the thundering storm winds of judgment, and Adam and Eve are absolutely terrified at the presence of the holy God because of their nakedness. Not just their physical nakedness, their spiritual nakedness. They know. They're overcome with shame, overcome with guilt, overcome with the corruption of their nature, and they know God now is coming in judgment. The holy God is there, and they are terrified. Genesis, as you know, is a book of firsts. What we have here, I think, is the very first day of the Lord, the day of the terrifying judgment of Yahweh. And Adam and Eve are rightly terrified and trying to hide. In verse 9, we see the divine call. The holy king extends really what is the summons to Adam, his royal priest, and the spiritual head of Eve. Notice he calls to Adam. The Lord called to the man. Notice the impersonal thing here. Called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now we know that the all-knowing, sovereign Lord of heaven and earth who is everywhere present and works all things to include the fall of man into sin and to include, to include all of our free choices that we make in accordance with our nature, that God works all those things according to the counsel of his holy, infallible will and according to his sovereign decree. So he knows exactly where they are. The question is a royal summons in the form of a question designed to draw Adam out. Adam, what have you done? Come forth and confess your sin. That's the force of the question. And see, there's hope in that. The Lord calls us forth to confess because there's Hope, when, when we have a heartfelt, honest confession, Romans 10, anyone, 
everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Come forth and confess your sin. Now, a couple of applications here for us to consider. First of all, it should be the obvious, is you can't hide from God. Or the old saying goes, you can run, but you can't hide. Psalm 139 here, you see, on the slide says, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God is everywhere present. And so, you need to come forward and confess your sin to the holy judge. You can hide all you want, but God knows. And so often we forget that about God. So often we go about our lives totally impervious to that truth. Even as Christians, we confess on the one hand, yes, God is all-knowing. Yes, God is everywhere present. But then we start living our life as if God is nowhere to be found. And every time we sin, every time we yield to that temptation, what we're saying is, is that it's not so much that, God, you don't exist. It's that, God, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. And then we hide. We're like Adam and Eve. That's what they did. You can't hide from the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Come forward and confess your sin. It doesn't matter where you run or where you try to hide because your nakedness will be exposed, so come out of hiding. And then secondly, Adam and Eve, they're terrified with good reason. This is the holy God of heaven and earth. This is the God before whom the angels cover their eyes because of the refulgence of his glory. This is unlike the namby-pamby view of God prevalent in our culture and in the church. God is not the big guy upstairs or a powerless grandfather figure who just wishes he could get someone to love him. This is the sovereign Lord who has decreed and no one can hold back his hand. He will accomplish his holy purposes because he is sovereign, he is omnipotent, and no one can say to him, what have you done? And he is absolutely pure. There is no shadow of turning in this God. And he will not be trifled with. Christian. That's not just for the world out there. That's for us too. You cannot trifle with our holy God. The text says in Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. A terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Adam and Eve understood that. Revelation 20 speaks of the great white throne judgment at the end of time. Everyone's going to appear there. I say this here, and that's the first day of the Lord. 
the last day of the Lord. Everyone is going to appear there. And you must face the Lord and give an account. And the books will be opened. And those whose names are found in the book of life enter into glory. And those whose names are not found in the book of life are cast into hell forever. And the only shelter from the whirlwind of God's righteous wrath and justice is Christ. Christ alone is the ark who can bring it safely through the storms of divine judgment. Have you turned to Christ? Are you in the ark of Christ? I beg with you, I plead with you to flee to Christ today. Stop hiding and stop running. No one knows the day or the hour. You don't know when you're going to breathe your last. Eternity hangs in the balance. This is a holy God. I don't know what you've heard on TV or whatever else. We will give an account. And Christ is the answer. That takes us to the consequences of sin. Verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden, Adam says, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now he knows, he's smart enough to know that he can't hide from God. But instead of coming forward in sorrowful repentance like the prodigal son of Luke 15 who returned home, this prodigal responds by saying he was afraid because I was naked. That's why I was afraid. And you see what he's doing here, it's really, he's not coming clean. Remember, they sewn the, fo- the fig leaves together to cover themselves, so he's not technically naked. Obviously, it's not sufficient to cover the nakedness, but Adam was afraid, really, I think, not because of the physical nakedness, but because of the spiritual nakedness. He knows he can't stand before God in that nakedness, in the shame, and in the guilt, and in the corruption of his sin. I love what Meredith Klein says here. In this quote, this nakedness resulted from their loss of the covering of righteousness, the garment of the beauty of holiness. See, they were created upright. They had lost the ethical glory of God-likeness, which, was, which is the prerequisite to stand as a priest before the face of God and reflect the glory of God. By rejecting God's holy commandment, they had rejected and lost their original endowment with the image of God and had instead listened taken on a likeness to the devil. He was their newly adopted covenant father. Not just theirs, but all of humanity's. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you're of your father who? The devil. It's not to say that they're possessed of the devil, but they're under his sway. And they have pledge, whether they realize it or not, their allegiance to him. Everyone who refuses to bow the knee to Christ. You're in covenant with someone. You're either either in covenant with the Lord God Almighty or with Satan. Choose this day who you will serve. Choose this day. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Not when I turn 30. Or 75, 
or on my deathbed this day. This day. And we see the extent of the alienation and corruption in Adam and Eve's response. Right? Verse 11. When God asked if he had eaten of the tree, he responds, verse 12, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Oh, so much has been said about this. <laughs> you all probably heard there's nothing much I can add here, is there? But well, for fun, let's just go in and see here. First of all, you see like the serpent, Adam, he's so crafty. Notice the craft here. He acknowledges the facts, right? Yes, the woman gave him the fruit. Yes, he ate of the fruit, he confesses, right? And yes, the Lord, you, the Lord did give him the woman. These are all facts. Very good, Adam. You've, you've acknowledged the facts. But in the confession, obviously, it's tinged with blame. It was that woman, Lord, who, by the way, you gave me. Thanks a lot. And you know, what was I supposed to do with that fruit anyway? Just look at it. I mean, she touched it, and she, she told the serpent, as soon as she touched it, she, she didn't die. What was I supposed to do? I want to please my wife. I'm a good husband. Yeah, I ate it, but don't blame me. Blame even. Blame yourself. <laughs> then in verse 13, God asks, okay, Eve, what's, what is this you've done? You can just picture Adam standing there going, yeah, get her, God. That's right, yeah, wait, what did you do? Get her, get her, God. See, it's her fault. And he says, well, you know, who's the serpent? He deceived me, and I ate. The devil made me do it. It wasn't because I'm a sinner. I was deceived, even though I shouldn't have been deceived because I clearly knew what your word was, and as soon as I heard the lying serpent say things that I knew weren't true, I had no business being deceived, but there I was that the devil made me do it. She states the facts and blames it on, on the devil. She blame shifts. Adam, blame shifts. And there's an application for us, blame shifting. That's what we do. And we look at Adam and Eve and go, look at them blame shifting. And we laugh and I'm so glad I'm not a blame shifter. <laughs> In reality, yes, I am. I thought of this. I thought, you know what? It'd be a cool thing here. This is the way my mind works, I guess. So I thought, a Marvel superhero villain. And we could call him the blame shifter. Right? I'm going to submit that to Hollywood, the blame shifter. I got it. I know what my artwork here is. It should be on the, there it is, the blame shifter. You got the, that's the, the purple, that's the cape. Now, the thing there, that's not a gun. That's the finger on the hand there. That's the finger. That's right. That's the. So they're pointing, you know, that's what we do. You. Who, me? No, you. So we blame shift all the time. That's what we do. And we're really good at it. We're superheroes at it. Or supervillains at it, whatever you want to say. And it goes like this. You know, I acted ugly because you. If people would just go when the light turns green, if they would just go, I wouldn't act so crazy behind the wheel. Green means go. I'm sorry, but have you heard that? So many examples we could give 
about that. And the thing is that we, we try to soften our sin by blame shifting. Sin, listen, sin is always looking for a way out. It's always looking for a way for us to, to make us feel better about ourselves and to not come clean with, with what's really going on inside our heart. See, the reason we react wrongly to things isn't because of the external circumstances out there. Well, the reason I did this is because I'm under so much stress or because I did this or because my boss is that and, and, and my spouse did this or my kids did that. And... No, the reason you reacted in the way you knew you shouldn't have reacted is because there's sin in your heart. That's why. So don't blame shift. Just come clean and confess your sin. And when you say sorry to somebody, say sorry, but don't follow it up with but. But I just say sorry. And of course, we like to blame God for all that's wrong in the world. God, I see all this stuff. You're all powerful. You're all loving. And yet I see all this stuff. that is It's your fault, God. When I think God's probably saying, well, if you weren't such a God-hating, rebellious wretch, there wouldn't be any of this stuff. Right? Don't blame God for the fact that there's all kinds of chaos in the world. We should look at ourselves and the fact that we're sinful and corrupt. We blame God. Well, God, I was for all of our sinful desires. I was born this way. I couldn't help myself. So you made me this way, God, so therefore that's why I did the thing so you can't hold me accountable. Oh, no. You know what the truth is. You can't blame, blame God for your sin and say, well, it's just who I am by nature. And then we see hiding, hiding who we really are. The fig leaves of religious performance, for example. The obvious example is the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees? They conformed to all the outward trappings of religious life. They kept all the rules, but their hearts, Jesus says, were far from the Lord. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about these people who, who on the last day, they're going to say, well, Lord, didn't we do all of these great things? Look at what I did. And then what's the Lord going to say? Depart from me, I never knew you. Fig leaves of good works can't ever cover our nakedness before God. Or there's a fig leaf of religious license. What do I mean by that? Well, we may understand, well, yeah, my religious works can't save me, yet many of us rationalize our sin away. Well, I go to church, I read my Bible, and I pray, so I'm good to go. I can do whatever I want to do. Or a popular one today is that, well, what I call the hot mess Christianity. Hot mess Christianity. In the name of keeping it real, we talk about the sin in our hearts and then almost wear it like a badge of honor. I'm a hot mess. Yeah, I'm a hot mess. Talking about my sin. Oh yeah, we do want to be real with the sin that's there. But if that's your consistent pattern of life, if that's what you're reveling in, your hot messness, spiritually? Can I just say, I, I, I think you, you need Christ. 
you may be spiritually naked. Turn to the Lord. See, the Lord, your identity in the Lord is not to be a hot mess. It's to be holy. Holy. And holiness in the Lord is happiness. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Doesn't mean you don't have to, you're not struggling. Yes. Don't revel in that. Grieve over your sin. Crucify the sin through faith in Christ. Then there's non-religious leaves, fig leaves, the morality. Hey, I live a good moral life, so I'm fine. God's not going to send me to hell because look at how good I am. Or there's the uh, fig leaf of materialism. We hide behind our nice cars and our nice homes and our nice careers, and I'm a good person. Or the fig leaf of intellectualism and science. I believe in science. I don't believe all this God nonsense. Okay, well, you'll see. <laughs> you do believe. You're just suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Lots of things. People are hiding is the point. We need to come out of hiding and come to Christ who lived for us and died on the cross for our sin and trust in his perfect work alone for our right standing before a holy God and knowing that he's working in us not to be a hot mess, but to be holy in the Lord, to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. And the Christian life here is one of constantly identifying the fig leaves we use to hide our spiritual nakedness. Let me ask you a question. What are the fig leaves that you're using to cover your spiritual nakedness? We all have them. I love what Luther says here. This is what the Christian life ultimately is about. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. In other words, identify those fig leaves and turn from their insufficient clothing and rest in the perfect clothing of Christ, which alone is the ground upon which we can stand. And then we see the ultimate consequences. God now brings the judgment. Verses 14 through 24, he pronounces judgment upon the serpent. He pronounces judgment upon Eve, pronounces judgment upon Adam. We're going to explore that more next week. But it makes it clear here, the point is, is that the judgment is death. You are dead. Dead in your trespasses and sin. We are, as Psalm 51 says, conceived in sin. We are, as Ephesians 2, 1 says, dead in our trespasses and sins, objects of God's righteous wrath. It's serious. That's the human condition. But God. Third point, God provides salvation from sin to all who believe. Genesis 3.15, we'll explore more in depth next week. It shows how God would send a Savior through the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, obviously ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the true seed of the woman who's conceived in the womb of the, of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. And what's going on there is, is that as Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, he tells us how the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, brought himself down from the highest heights 
of exalted glory down to the deepest depths of woe and shame as he humbles himself, Paul says, to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Why does Paul say even the death of the cross? To highlight the utter shame of the cross. Something we forget because we take it so much for granted. It's interesting, in the Gospels, when Jesus was crucified, it says that the soldiers gambled for his clothing. And besides fulfilling prophecy in Psalm 22 of how the Messiah would die, it meant that Jesus was physically naked as he hung on the cross. This is why the cross was such a shameful and cursed thing to the Jews. And it's very interesting, isn't it, that in God's providence, Jesus comes and is put to death in a time when capital punishment would be by means of crucifixion, which meant curse and also that Jesus would be naked. Summing up in the very act itself the full scope of what sin is. And so we see the first Adam realize his nakedness and tried to cover it up. But the second Adam was willingly stripped naked. And on the cross, he wears the fig leaves of our sin and self-righteousness so that in exchange we could wear his righteousness. The first Adam was a blame shifter and blameworthy. The second Adam was blameless, yet bore the blame that was rightfully ours. The first Adam cowered in fear at the wrath of God. The second Adam sweat drops of blood as he contemplated that wrath and then willingly bore that wrath. And so, Hebrews 12, verse 2, we must look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, he didn't count that horrible shame worthy of notice, but endured it all for us who were naked in shame and guilt. It was for the joy set before him, the joy of knowing that on the cross he was going to purchase an innumerable amount of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue by his precious blood, and he would rise from the dead and ascend into heaven and pour out his spirit upon them to be with them forever. And not only would he deliver us from the penalty of sin, but through his death and resurrection, he would deliver us from the very power of sin itself. Not only are we now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, but the power of sin is broken in our lives so that we shine forth now by the power of God's spirit, his righteousness in our lives, as his spirit works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. In Christ, we who were naked have been forever clothed in the royal robes of Christ's righteousness. But to receive that clothing, you have to, as Paul says in Romans 10, call upon the name of the Lord. What are the fig leaves that you're trusting in to make you feel good and to justify yourself before a holy God? What are they? Here's what I'd like you to do. Get rid of them. Call upon the Lord 
who bore all of your nakedness, all of your guilt, all of your shame, and who promises to clothe you with his righteousness. So for those of us who have, do you find yourself blame-shifting when you're confronted with sin? Do you still hide from God with the fig leaves of religiosity and legalism on the one hand or license on the other? My call to us today is to repent. Let's put our sin to death. Come out from the darkness and into the light where there is love and forgiveness and restoration. Let us, as Hebrews 12 says, keep our eyes firmly fixed where? On Christ the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this glorious gospel. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, and enable us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.